Hi everyone, PK here. And first of all, before we begin this episode, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to these episodes. I hope I'm, I genuinely hope I'm bringing you a ton of value. We've done more than 35 episodes now. So if you're new to the podcast, go back and listen to it from the first episode. Every single episode has a unique uh, you could say value bomb, <laughs> to use a, an interesting fa- phrase. You know, it's just it's just packed with value, so don't miss it. And if you have been listening for a long time, I just want to express my gratitude. Thank you so much, and I would love it. I don't often ask, but I would love it if you, on Spotify or iTunes, leave me a review. You know, I, that way we actually get to build a conversation. Of course, you can join my Facebook community with more than 13,000 people, but I want to know what you think of this podcast. So that hopefully gives me inspiration and some rejuvenation, you know, some enlightenment to carry on and continue bringing the kind of property insights that, you know, just raw and honest and you know, based on data that you don't really get anywhere else, right? Without really an agenda at all. So please leave a review. I would, I would love that so much. Now, in this episode and the next series of episodes, we're just going to change it up actually a little bit. I just have so many of you asking a ton of really interesting and useful and valuable questions. You know, you PM me, you DM me on Insta, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, you ask on the YouTube channel comments. So what I've done is I've taken a number of these questions and scattered throughout the next few weeks. We'll be going to through two or three questions, maybe even four questions per episode And I'm just really going to be sometimes walking outside, sometimes ruminating in my house and answering them for you, right? Just really raw, really authentic, not scripted, and just telling you my honest thoughts and honest answers based on your questions. So sometimes the the audio audio quality may not be super because I might have decided to put my phone next to my mouth outside and there might be a, a bit of wind or sometimes I might have put my phone next to my mouth and it's inside and my son is screaming at the back, but I'm just trying to answer these questions as best as possible. So hopefully this series is actually a little bit more personal because it's more targeted in the way it brings you value. All right, so thank you so much and here we go. Do you want to achieve wealth and passive income through property investing? PK Gupta, host of Oz Property Investment Mastery, will help you achieve passive income by buying top 5% growth and positive cash flow property and building a portfolio using data without you wasting months of time doing research, spending weekends at inspections, or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyer's agents each time. So if you are confused and overwhelmed by the amount of contradictory information available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you. All right, so the first question is, how do I negotiate to buy a property under its market value? So what offer should you be putting on a property in order to have a chance at getting it underneath market value? And in this context, all I mean by underneath market value is underneath comparable sales. So what that means in another way is very similar properties to the one that you are interested in. What have they sold for in recent history? 
and how do we get that underneath those sales you know, how do we secure the property below that sort of market value the first thing to do when thinking about putting an offer on a property is to completely disregard the listing price okay so if there's no listing price oftentimes you might think that oh look that makes it hard to figure out how much i should put on this property but actually that's good because you don't want that listing price to influence your offer at all okay so i come across this problem a lot in new property investors but also in intermediate property investors where what they're looking at is let's say a house it's um you know it's listed at between let's say 380 and 420 right 380 and 420 and as soon as a, a novice property investor or even a intermediate property investor someone who's got a few properties already as soon as they look at that they immediately think okay the listing the range is between 380 and 420 if i get can get this under 400 i'm doing well right if i can just snag this in the 300s you know with a three in front of it I'm going to be doing well and I've, you know what, I've beaten the agent, I've beaten the vendor, I've got it in the lower half of what they're wanting it uh, to be sold at. Okay, but this is absolutely the wrong mentality. And the reason is, there are so many instances where that property could have actually been worth only 360 or 370 or 375 or 378. But if you have the, had this mentality of, all right, well, I'm certainly not going to offer right at the top of the range. Um, but, you know, if I can grab it in the bottom end of that range, 380 to 420, I'm doing well. If you had that mentality, then you're, le you're leaving thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on the table, so to speak. So what you really need to do is when you've selected the suburb, when you've selected the right pockets within the suburb that you want to buy within and when you've selected the right streets and then subsequently the right type of property that A is going to be in demand for owner occupiers in that suburb and B is going to be in demand for tenants in that suburb so that you have no issues selling it down the line and you have no issues renting it straight away then the very next thing is value the property and it's important that you do that even before you put an offer on. That's how you start to find and start to buy properties underneath market value. Okay, it's by first of all, finding the true valuation. And the thing is that yes, online bank valuations can help. But if you go to three different banks, three different brokers, they're all going to be different. Even the banks don't exactly give you a 100% accurate valuation of the property. The best way to understand the market, the best way to understand that particular pocket of the suburb, the best way to understand the true market valuation of the property that you're interested in is to do it yourself. Okay? And that way you know that A, you're not overpaying, but then you can start to build a negotiation strategy to get the, the vendor's expectation down to the true market value or ideally underneath market valuation. I always want to say we want to buy at least 50% of our properties underneath market valuation. It's pretty difficult to do, I won't lie. Um, and I'm not talking $100,000 underneath market value here, but we want to have at least a 50% chance 
of making 10, 20, 30 thousand dollars on the way in, getting a head start um, on our equity creation by buying underneath um, similar properties what they've been sold at. And of course, you can't refinance that house the next week and extract that equity. You need to wait three months. But when you do wait three months, and then there will be 10, 20, 30, sometimes more, thousand dollars available in equity that then you can take 80% off and or sometimes more than 80% of and and go from there and it really helps build your deposit really quickly for the next property purchase so I just want to leave you with that the concept of buying underneath market value is done first and foremost by identifying market value and the way to identify market value is not to listen to an agent is not to trust the online bank valuations but do this yourself and i covered a little bit there's obviously more depth to how you do this but hopefully that that helps so the second question is should i buy one more expensive property or two cheaper properties here are my answers okay so there's pros and cons on each side i know so many people have gone to their mortgage broker and, and they might have realized that they have $600,000 of borrowing capacity or $800,000 of borrowing capacity or a million dollars of borrowing capacity. Um, and it's you know quite tempting to just splurge all of that if you have the requisite equity and deposit as well to maximize that borrowing capacity. It's easy just to splurge that on one property. But um, let's talk about the pros and cons. So if, if this is um, a scenario that you're in, then this will be useful to you. So probably worth um, listening to the end. So one of the, the pros of buying one more expensive property is that it's going to significantly um, reduce your transaction costs. Okay, so when you buy property, there's transaction costs, there's things like legal costs, there's other, you know, non-variable costs things that just cost an X amount, regardless of how expensive your property is. Bank fees, settlement fees, um, legal costs, depreciation schedule, cleaning costs for, for the initial clean before your tenant moves in, a whole bunch of these sorts of costs that are fixed. And of course, if you buy one $800,000 property as opposed to two $400,000 properties, then those fixed costs you'll, you'll only incur once. And sometimes those fixed costs can go all the way up to five or ten thousand dollars, right? It all it all adds up removalists if your vendor has left furniture there um, already. So by um, buying just one more expensive property, that definitely um, that definitely can reduce your transaction costs of those that are fixed in nature. Another pro of buying one more expensive property as opposed to two relatively inexpensive properties is um, if you end up buying the right property um, and if you end up buying a property that does do well, that does increase in value, then that absolute equity gain is going to be really large. So let's think about, let's say you bought one property worth $1 million in Sydney, you know, let's say in 2014. A 5% growth on a million dollar property is much, much more than a 5% growth on a $500,000 property. So I know so many investors, these are more high net worth individuals, 
that just buy a really expensive property because even if they just get it half right and it only increases by three, four, five percent, that is still, you know, like three percent of um, of a million dollars is thirty thousand dollars. Five percent is fifty thousand dollars. The percentage doesn't seem high, but the actual quantum, the actual absolute amount, is huge. So imagine if you said, "I'd be happy." with a portfolio that just increases 3% per annum. Normally people would say that's not such a good uh, result, but if your properties are a million dollars each, then 3% is all you need, <laughs> okay? So that's another advantage of high priced property, of maximizing your borrowing capacity and just splurging it on one property. If you do it right, you know, you're gonna do really well. However, there is a, a litany of downsides, of cons of buying one property as opposed to splitting up your equity, splitting up your borrowing capacity and buying two or three less expensive properties. Now, one of the pros of splitting up and buying less expensive properties is clearly diversification. So yes, you can do really well if you splurge a million dollars in Sydney, but in that you can buy two and a half, maybe three properties elsewhere around the country. And if you end up getting that Sydney property wrong, then that's your entire funds, your borrowing capacity gone. Um, whereas if you split that fund, uh, that borrowing capacity and those funds up, you have more of an opportunity to make a mistake, but still do well. All right, diversification. Hobart might not do well, but Adelaide has done well. Brisbane might not do well, but regional Victoria has done well. You have more chance for, um, for reducing your risk. The other upside of splitting up and buying cheaper properties is that yields are generally higher. Yields are higher on less expensive properties as opposed to more expensive properties. Now that's not a blanket rule, doesn't always exist, but as a, a generalization and look always with generalizations, there's exceptions, hence the name generalization. But as a generalization, a $400,000 property or a $500,000 property will have a higher yield, you know, maybe four and a half, five, six percent, maybe up seven percent versus a million dollar property. And really that's just because there's not that many renters that can afford to rent really, really expensive properties. Of course, there's always going to be people that want to rent, you know, really expensive properties, but the number of those people is less. Hence the yields end up being pressurized, uh, end up being compressed is the technical word, as you get more and more expensive properties. So if your yield is higher in lower properties, then your net cash flow is going to be better if you don't end up buying $1 million property, but rather buy two $500,000 properties or split that million dollars into three properties, okay? So your cash flow is better if you split it up. And because your cash flow is better, when you split it up, your borrowing capacity is improved. So in many instances where a bank will loan you $1 million for one property, they will loan you um, $350,000 to $400,000 for three properties. Now, 400 times three is more than a million. So you see how when you've split up your purchases, not only are you getting better cash flow because they're better, higher yielding, but the bank is recognizing that and is then rewarding you with higher borrowing capacity. So when it comes to developing your long-term strategy, of course, the best thing is to have as many dollar value of assets in your portfolio as possible. 
right? Because you want to control as much value, as many assets from a dollar value as possible, right? So from that perspective, because the bank is rewarding you for cheaper properties, sometimes it's a better idea to, to split up and not buy a million dollar property, but rather two or three less expensive properties. The other upside of buying less expensive properties as well is, you know, we talked about diversification, but in the long term, you know, in 10 or 15 years time, buying less um, expensive properties will allow you to buy more properties. Um, the more properties that you have, the better flexibility you have in 10 or 15 years time to decide which ones you should sell. You know, the traditional orthodox strategy is to, let's say, buy six properties in 10 or 15 years, sell three, use the profit after capital gains tax discount from the three that you sell to pay off the debt of the three that you hold. And bada bing, bada boom, you have three properties completely unencumbered by debt, giving you uh, close to six figure, if not six figure passive income. So when you only buy million dollar properties, you know, it's not like you can buy six properties. So you might only be able to buy one or two properties. And so therefore it's harder for you to sell half your portfolio, because if you do so, you'll only be left with one property. And what if that's not a good one? Okay, so less expensive properties gives you more flexibility, more options down the line to figure out which are the higher yielding ones that I'm going to keep. And those are gonna be my cash cows for retirement versus which are the higher growth ones that have done me well. And now I can sell them, use the proceeds, the cash, the profit to pay off the higher yielding ones and have a life completely unencumbered by debt. Okay, and just on a side note, that is a strategy that works really well. It always has for dozens of years in Australia. It always will do. Uh, and that means that you're not having to contribute your hard-earned earnings, your savings from your job or your business into paying off your mortgage, right? You stay interest only and let the market pay off your mortgage by the growth of the three that you'll sell. Um, so that's another upside of, of splitting up um, and, and buying cheaper properties than more expensive properties. So, you know, I talked about one, uh, one or two advantages of more expensive properties. We talked about three advantages of cheaper properties. Just while it's on my mind as well, one thing that you need to be careful of is avoid buying properties less than $200,000. That doesn't mean that they, won't, they don't grow in value. It's just the transaction costs are going to be really expensive because there's a fixed element of transaction costs, legal fees, depreciation schedule, etc. And you have to pay that regardless if your property is a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. So if you think that you should split up your, your million dollars of borrowing capacity in 10 properties, it's a bit of an extreme example, but in 10 properties worth a hundred thousand dollars each, from a transaction cost perspective, that's a really inefficient way to develop a portfolio. You're spending so much money on transaction costs, it's really not achieving economies of scale. In fact, it's diseconomies of scale. It's an inefficient way to, to go about investing. So, you know, personally, I favor buying properties between the sort of 250 to 300 mark all the way to 650, 700. That really is the sweet spot between getting all the advantages of the cheaper properties, you know, borrowing capacity, yield, etc., and also getting or avoiding the disadvantages um, of, of just buying 
one large or more expensive property. That's kind of the sweet spot and you can really easily find high, high, high growth um, suburbs and positive cash flow territory in that bracket. So hopefully that was useful. And the third question is, can I build wealth? Can I build passive income even if I'm buying a property to live in? So I know many of you are looking to buy your principal place of residence, not your investment properties. But you have a plan that in the future you want to buy properties uh, for investment purposes. That's not right now. Right now you're just focusing on buying a principal place of residence and owner occupier property for yourself. And here are the three reasons why you actually need to think ahead and you need to think ahead with an investment uh, mindset even when buying your principal place of residence, your own home to live in right now. So the first reason is capital growth. Okay, so of course, if you only want to buy your principal place of residence and really never move out of it or never seek to refinance it or never seek to start a property investment or portfolio, then this is less important. But if you have aspirations to become a property investor, then even if you are buying to live in right now, you need to put capital growth right at the top of your priority list when it comes to finding the best place to live, right? And now, of course, if you're looking to buy to live, you know, I'm sure you'll have some emotional drawings towards a particular location, particular suburbs, you know, good schools, a particular part of town, you know, where your community is, where your friends live, you know, all that sort of thing. But I encourage you that in the area that you're happy to live in, optimize for the best suburb, okay? So buying a suburb that grows by even 1% more percent in growth every year for 10 or 15 years is the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars, okay? So if you have two suburbs, even if they're within a five kilometer radius of each other, one grows at 1% more growth rate every year versus the other, that impacts your overall profit or equity by hundreds of thousands of dollars over the long term because of compounding, right? That's how compounding growth works. So it's so important that you find the best capital growth suburb even if you're looking to live in there. Because in the future, in a year, six months, two years, maybe five years, you want to refinance that house and use that equity to start a multiple property portfolio. And if you think about that now, then you'll not have to draw upon your savings to start your investment portfolio. You can just refinance your main house, your owner occupier to commence the journey. There's so many people out there that have done this really well and they end up buying five, six properties and it's not from their savings that they're contributing the deposit, it's really just through the equity in their own home. And you're not, they're not having to wait five, six years to do this. Okay, so think of it like a Venn diagram. So one circle here where you actually want to live and another circle here where, you know, there are good capital growth suburbs. So you want to find that middle ground. Sorry, it's a bit weird with my hands. But, you know, two circles, find the intersect 
that's where you should be buying. Don't ignore data. Don't ignore um, the main contributors of capital growth. We can predict this and it's not predicted through proximity to schools or CBD or parks or shopping centers, right? You need to look at data to predict where the best capital growth suburbs will be. And that's objective without opinion. So that's number one reason why you should have an investment mindset even when buying an owner-occupier home for yourself. The second uh, reason is that if you do have aspirations to become a uh, property investor down the line, then when you're buying your own home to live in, think about whether you want to be a passive investor or an active investor. If in the future you want to be able to fast track your property investment journey, then it's a good idea in your own occupier, in your principal place of residence, to buy something that has potential for value add. Now, whether that's a case of um, buying a, a relatively old home, not that it's not habitable, but a relatively old home that you can cosmetically renovate and increase value, you know, I'm talking put in $20,000, increase the value by $70,000, $80,000, that in the future will allow you to start your property investment journey. Or maybe you have want to have potential for granny flat, so side access and in the right council. So you can put a granny flat at the back of that house. And you may want to move out of your that house at some point, And now all of a sudden it's become a really high yielding, a really high yielding property that will enhance your borrowing capacity and allow you to buy six more investment properties as opposed to just three or four more investment properties. Okay, or you might want subdivision potential. So I know you're living in this house right now, that's what you want to do. But in five years time, when you want to start your property journey, or in a year's time, when you want to start your property journey, you want to have something that can be subdivided and that way you can get some early runs on the board by subdividing it and then selling that that vacant block of land and having chunk equity, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars you have to play with. Or you can build on top and keep both for additional equity um, and rental income. It's really up to you, but those decisions should start now. Or you want to may want to take an even more um, high risk strategy and actually develop where you're finding a, a site that you're going to live in for the meantime. But in the future, you can actually subdivide and build townhouses on three or four townhouses, and that will really spearhead your property investment journey. And you'll be miles ahead of other property investors who bought their principal place of residence out of emotion without thinking of these investment considerations. So that's the second thing that you need to be mindful of if you are looking to buy your own home to live in but want to become a property investor in the future. The third thing is lending. So look, as a principal place of residence, it's really easy to not think about lending too much. You know, we'll just put down as much money as we have and as much money as we have towards the deposit to reduce the mortgage and pay less interest. But if you have aspirations to become a property investor in a in six months time or a year's time or two years time or three years time, even though you're buying your principal place of residence now, it may make sense to actually counterintuitively keep your principal place of residence as a interest only loan. 
okay? And what that will allow you to do is not pay additional interest because of a huge mortgage because you have all those surplus funds in an offset account, okay? But this way, you have an interest-only loan and you have liquid cash that you can use to invest in your first investment property, in your second investment property, in your third investment property. It's a good idea to have an offset account as opposed to a redraw account, okay? Because if you're paying down your mortgage or you're putting money in a redraw account, your access to that cash is in the control of the bank. They can say, yes, we'll give you access to it, or depending on your income situation, they may say, no, we won't give you access to it. So it's a good idea if you want to become a property investor in the future to at least consider not paying principal and interest and not paying as much of the house down as possible of your owner occupier, your principal place of residence. That doesn't mean we're increasing the amount of interest we're paying because we'll just park all the surplus funds that we have in an offset account and that gives us so much more opportunity and liquidity and flexibility to then start our property investment journey when we want to. Okay, so those are the three things that you should invest in right now in your education so that you can buy your principal place of residence with the pursuit or with the idea of fast-tracking your investment property journey when it is that you want to start that as well. Okay, the two aren't mutually exclusive. So the first thing is capital growth, right? The Venn diagram, buy in an area where the data suggests there will be capital growth and you actually want to live there as well. The second thing was buy something with some value add potential because that will help your property investment journey when it comes to that, if and when you move out, etc. Um, and the third thing is, um, is lending. Okay, have a really hard think about it. If you really do want to start your property investment journey, don't put all your money into your principal place of residence. Keep it in an offset account and have that money ready to go when it comes to buying your investment properties. Again, your investment properties will pay your principal place of residence down. The market, the capital growth of your investment properties in five, 10 years will be able to be um, extracted to pay down that bad debt in your principal place of residence. There's no point putting your hard-earned money into that. I hope you guys got a lot of intelligence, I shouldn't say intelligence, knowledge, but more importantly than knowledge, like practical, you know, practical wisdom or practical insights from those three questions um, and those answers that I gave you. I truly hope that it's starting to demystify property, real estate, investing in general, and hopefully it's getting you to that very next step to achieving financial happiness. Thank you for being with me. As always, my name is PK and I'll see you next week.